Isn't it great to worship our God this morning? Uh, as Bill just shared earlier, uh, I don't need to preach this. Everything's already, already been said, so just give the benediction right now. A lot of those songs, uh, that one always speaks to where I'm at, that just that anthem, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Such a powerful statement about our great God and his not just his ability to overcome obstacles, but his, his power to overcome death itself. Amazing. That is our God. For the last few weeks, we've been going through this series, uh, and the title of it, uh, as you see up here, is That We May Die With Him. Uh, and as we look towards Easter and the death of Christ, uh, that sounds morbid and all that stuff, but this is a joyous occasion, uh, celebrating the life and death of our, our Lord and Savior, and we, we, we look forward to it. Uh, as, as the church around the globe and hopefully here. Uh, and it was Thomas, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, who uttered those words that we may die with him in John chapter 11 as his way of expressing a, a, a unique participation with what Christ was about to endure. To go to the point and say, Christ, wherever you're going, I will go there even to the point of death. And as we look ahead and think about all that the cross means uh, and beckons us to think about, part of this series is meant to stir in our hearts the same sentiment as Thomas. For me, it asks the question, if I follow Jesus, which I do, or otherwise I wouldn't be here, if I follow Jesus, how far am I actually willing to go with this? Is there a limit to my, my ability to follow? Is it a few steps? Is it for a few days? How far am I willing to follow this Jesus? What lengths will I go to? And an even deeper question, do I actually really want to be like Jesus, is that even something I can possibly do in my lifetime? In the last few weeks, we've looked at a few different examples of Scripture. We've been, we've been sort of pulling from the Old Testament and looking forward from what the Old Testament had to say about this coming Messiah. And so we focused on some really important uh, aspects of what took place. We talked about how Christ is our healer, and Bill talked about how when the, the Israelites in the wilderness were complaining about eating all the manna and all of the other stuff that's around that story— God provides this snake for them to look at because they were poisoned and they had to look to it and they would be healed. And we eventually look forward to the cross and realize that through Christ, we look to Christ and he is our healer. And recently, Bill also shared how Christ is our rock. This is our foundation for faith. We hold fast to him. And this morning, I want to talk about Jesus, our deliverer. I want to focus on that aspect of what Jesus has done in his, his work through his life and death and resurrection. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and the overall narrative of that, uh, when you hear that word deliverer, uh, at least for me, I automatically go right to this, the, the story of the Exodus. You think of this amazing story uh, taking place where God's people are enslaved in Egypt and they just have no way out of this and they utter this cry, God, where are you? Can you help us? And it's a go-to story, uh, and it's an amazing, miraculous intervention of God not just saying, yeah, I'll help you eventually, but it actually says he like hears their cries, he heard their pleas, and, and at that moment decided to intervene. And this miraculous intervention, he sends Moses to come in and free his people from captivity, uh, from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. However, this morning, that's not the story I want to talk about. It's a great story, and an amazing one. But I want to take us further along the Old Testament narrative, all the way to the Babylonian exile of God's people, Israel. And you can find that uh, throughout the latter portion of the narrative, but we'll be parking in the book of Daniel particularly. 
some of the backdrop for that is King Nebuchadnezzar uh, came into uh, Jerusalem. He invaded it, took it over, and took captive the inhabitants. So he brought them all back to Babylon with him, uh, and they were exiled there with him to remain under sort of his, his reign and, and his rule. And there they remain under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, if you read the story, you really find out he's not really a great guy. He does some pretty decent things. He makes some pretty great statements about our great God. But at the end of the day, he's really not a great king. He takes these people captive. And we read in the first chapter of Daniel of the events that transpired detailing their exile. And we are, of course, introduced to Daniel and his three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And together they impress the king. They do amazing things that sort of set them apart from the rest of the Israelite people. It says in the first chapter that because of their status and their position in the king's court, God gave them more wisdom than those around them, gave them more favor, gave them more opportunity to be in the presence of the king. And in chapter 2 we read that this king has a dream and it's bothering him so much because uh, the meaning of the dream is eluding him. He, he has no idea what it means. And so he's, he's searching far and wide. He's calling his counselors. He's calling his, his uh, magicians and any, any person who can come and interpret this dream for him. Only to be let down because no one is able to do it for him. And ultimately under this situation, uh, he, we find out he, ultimately right there that he's ruthless. Because after his counselors and the people come along and can't interpret the dream, he actually goes and tells them in his fury to destroy them all. You've all failed me. You all deserve to die. And so he, in a quick, rash decision, he basically tells all these people, you deserve to die because you can't interpret my dream. And Daniel comes along and he's like, well, calm down, like, <laughs> relax a little bit. We, we can figure this out. You don't have to kill them. You don't have to destroy all of these people. Uh, I'll tell you the meaning of your dream. And Daniel interpreted this dream, and I'm not going to get into it. You can read that in chapter 2 for yourself. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, component to the story we're getting into. Uh, but Daniel interprets this, and the king and his council are amazed. Because the king wasn't asking like two or three people to interpret this dream. He was asking anyone and everyone who had the ability to even do it, and they all failed. And Daniel comes along and does this through the power of God, and God give revealing to him uh, the meaning of the dream. And in verse 47 of chapter 2, the king actually says, Truly your God, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. King Nebuchadnezzar makes this statement. You think, wow, what a man of God. No. (laughs) He makes this statement, but as we carry on into the next next section, we'll find out that Nebuchadnezzar is kind of just one of these wishy-washy type uh, people. And he says this statement, and then he lavishes gifts on Daniel. He congratulates him on doing this, this feat. And we are told later on at the end of the chapter uh, that after Daniel gets this newfound promotion because of his, his interpretation of the dream, he get, makes two requests to the king, and he asks the king uh, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, can be promoted to oversee the province in the, in the province of Babylon. And so we focus this morning on chapter 3 with sort of that as our backdrop, uh, understanding a little bit of who King King Nebuchadnezzar is. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll be there for most of the morning. We are not told how much time actually transpires between between chapters 2 and 3. It could be years, days, weeks. We're not very sure. Um, But as we get there, keep in mind that 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 statement that that King Nebuchadnezzar made, truly your God is a God of gods and uh, Lord of kings, an amazing statement. Um, But keep that in mind as we move into Daniel chapter 3. So if you want to follow me, we'll be in verse uh, 1 to 7. And I think we have that up on the screen as well. 
So King Nebuchadnezzar uh, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of all those instruments, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Quite a turn of events from this guy who just said, surely your God is the God of all gods. And then he comes to this statement and he's, he's fashioned this, this idol, this statue. And we face a problem right at the outset of chapter 2. I would have assumed at the end of reading chapter 1 that things are probably going to look up a little bit for the people of Israel. And you get to this chapter and you realize, oh, no, it's not going to go well uh, at all whatsoever. And there's a huge problem that they're faced with. And the king has ordered the construction of this massive statue. Uh, you read 60 cubits uh, tall and 60 cubits, or 6 cubits wide. 90 feet tall, if you want to put that in today's terms. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide the equivalent of a 10-story building. This is how big of a statue that he has set up. This thing is huge. It is not just some small, petty statue that they're bowing down to. This is a massive statue. And he has heard this amazing interpretation of his dream uh, by Daniel. And in the dream, Daniel sort of connotates the golden, the portion of the statue, the dream is about a statue, and the gold portion, the head, Daniel sort of alludes that that's King Nebuchadnezzar. And so what does he do after he hears this dream? He's like, well, if I'm just the gold head, I want to be the whole thing. So he creates this whole statue. Uh, let, let me build a golden statue. That's, that's his, his action plan. It is most likely uh, a statue of one of the many gods of Babylon. This isn't a monotheistic nation. They are polytheistic, and they believe in many gods. And so this could have been one of the many. We're not told who it is. In his pride and egocentric nature, he calls all of his leaders, rulers, and subjects together to show them this spectacle. And it is a spectacle. If I saw a 90-foot-tall golden statue, I'd be like, that's pretty amazing. Now, some people uh, will say that this statue wasn't exactly solid gold. Uh, one commentator actually says there's not enough gold in the, in the area at this time to have erected such a huge statue. So most people think it was wood on the inside and then just layered with gold, which would make some sense too. But Either way, this thing is, is a beautiful thing uh, to behold. And so he sets this thing up and he explicitly commands that all the people from top down, that his top officials that are his right-hand people, all the way down to the lowest person on the, on the pole, you all have to bow down and worship this image. No exceptions. None are given whatsoever. Everyone must participate. And they're given an ultima- ultimatum. Worship this image or die. It's not much of a choice when you, when you look at things from our vantage point. Worship this image or face the punishment of death. Place yourself in this story, if but for a moment, just to, to put yourself in the shoes of the people there at the time. Place yourself and you're hearing these words. How would you respond to that? This can either be the easiest decision of your life. You're like, yeah, I'll worship, no big deal. Like, my life's way too important. 
That could have been the easiest decision of your life or the hardest. Do I give up all my values, the, the God that I serve or gods or whichever God you associate with? This could have been a hard thing to do or a very easy thing. You may have resolved, I have family, I have friends, I have a life here, I've got a really decent job. I can't give that all up just because I don't want to bow down to this statue. Is it worth losing my life over? And for many people at this time, it's probably a no-brainer. Just worship the thing. It's not a big deal. Like, we worship all these other gods, so what's one more? It's a no-brainer thing. Who cares? And the culture during this, this period of time has no problem worshiping a god, let alone multiple gods. And what's more to the ever-growing list? And we're told in verse 7 that once the music starts, all the people and all the nations and all the languages obeyed. Whether they really wanted to or not, they did it. It didn't seem to matter uh, because in the context, if I was there, I'd be like, man, living's pretty important to me. If living's important to me, then, you know, is this really worth dying over? And so they all just fell and they did what they were told. They complied. However, as we carry on with the story, uh, we see a dilemma unfold for a small band uh, of friends. And so if you want to pull up verses 8 to 12 uh, as we carry on in the narrative. So we set up this image, all the people have bowed down, and then it says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship, they'll be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Tattletailers, uh, really, when you break it down. Uh, but some keen observers, it's almost as if they're sort of out like with weird binoculars, like looking for people who would do this. And it almost seems like they're trying to find a, this particular group, these three guys, and try to oust them. And uh, they're, they're looking for them to specifically disobey, as they're very eager to tattle on them with malicious intent, it tells us. They wanted them dead. So they go to the king and reiterate all of his commands in this fanciful way, trying to like woo him and turn his ear to them, trying to remind him, hey, you've done this thing, you should hold to it. These guys aren't obeying you. You should kill them. Sounds good. We don't know who these Chaldeans are exactly, um, but if you go back to chapter 1, you can sort of put yourself in that situation. After everyone is unable to interpret the dream, these guys are present, mind you, maybe not this specific band of guys, but there are Chaldeans present in that situation, and Daniel comes along and basically does their job for them. Undermines them, takes over position, gets promoted, has great standing with the king at the time. And so you can imagine in their position, they're like, who are these foreigners to come in and, and undercut what we potentially could have? We should be having the favor of the king, not these Jews. So that could be one interpretation of it, that Daniel undermined them. And that is one possible way of reasoning, their determination to get these three men in serious trouble. Get them out of the way. And if we do that, maybe we'll get the promotion. If they're gone, who knows? Either way, their motivation is evil, and these three guys are about to face a major dilemma because of their tattletaling. If you go further on in verse 13 to 15, then it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, 
Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And as anyone would read this from a modern lens, it seems rather ridiculous uh, to make this kind of request to anyone, especially in our day. Worship this thing or I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to throw you in a furnace. It seems like a ridiculous thing. But back then, this was a huge deal. It wasn't just about the principle of worshiping the idol. People typically believed that while the image itself wasn't the actual God, they didn't believe it was the actual God, but it was imbued with the God's essence. So you don't want to madden or anger or cause this God to be upset with you due to your lack of worship. So you worship for fear of what could happen. The issue at hand was more than just worshiping an object. The real underlying question being asked and forced upon the audience then and us even now is this one question. Who is truly worthy of worship? And the king forces this upon his subjects. Who is truly worthy of worship? It's me. Worship this statue. That's worthy of worship. Do it or die. I've built it and this object is worthy of your attention. And their choice to worship it Their choice to worship it or not is snatched from them. They don't really get much of a choice. The choice is very awful. Do it or die. As Shadrach and company listen, uh, you can hear uh, the king assert his real thought on the matter. The king isn't really overtly concerned necessarily particularly about the statue. He's concerned about himself. He asserts his real thought on the matter. Obey me, otherwise what God will save you from my hand. Not the God who they're supposed to worship. He's saying my hand. My hand is going to be the one that destroys you, not the God that I'm sort of setting up here for you to worship. In essence, he's saying, I'm, I'm the God. I have more power than some or even all the gods. No one would be able to save you. It's also not just about the statue. It's really about the king's demand for validation. I am important. I am powerful. I make the rules. I make the orders. I rule over all. I am king. Do as I say or face the consequences Who will deliver you from my hand? Worship me. Is his attitude on the matter. And perhaps these three men were given a second chance due to the fact that Daniel had sort of established them in this position. They're they're not just little people on the totem pole. They're, They're seeing over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They're leaders. And from King Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, it would not be becoming to have some people in your own leadership disobeying you in front of everyone. It would undermine your authority. It would make you look bad. People would be like, well, if these guys are getting away with it, then we wouldn't have to. He has to set the bar. So he orders them to toe the line and show everyone who is boss. And eventually their insubordination would be forgiven. He says, if you worship it, then, you know, it'll be good. But these men do something quite extraordinary. And just to clarify, at this particular time, King Nebuchadnezzar, yes, is a king of many kings in the Mesopotamian area, but Babylon is a powerhouse. This isn't just a small little village somewhere in the middle of nowhere. This is a massive state in the province. They are not to be messed with. And after defeating Assyria, they were the top dog. It was Assyria, and then they took them out, and now Babylon's number one. It is a powerful state, 
And this king is one of the most powerful kings in the region. And what is their response? We find out in verse 16 uh, on to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said this to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Talk about the guts on these guys, eh? That's pretty amazing. Keep in mind, too, these aren't like older guys. They're, they're young. They're young adults in that sense, the way uh, we're sort of reading into it. They're not, they're not that old. And here they are standing up to the king and saying, no, <laughs> we're not going to listen to what you have to say. It, our God is the one who's better. So, tough. And even more significant is their statement about their God. They make no presumptions in this statement. They could have said, oh, God's going to deliver us. He'll take care of everything. Do, what you, do your worst. In their statement, they make no presumptions that God will even deliver them. While they firmly believe that he can, like, he can save them, they, they hold to that firmly, but they resolutely declare, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to this thing and we're definitely not going to serve your gods. And in essence, they're saying, we'd rather die than betray our God. We'd rather die. And in a world where everyone else is doing it, they could have easily succumbed to the pressures around them and said, oh, okay, fine. Joe's doing it, so why not me? What's the worst thing that could happen? Who's going to care? What's the big deal? But in this moment, they go against the grain, stand firm in their belief, and the response to the king is shocking to everyone there listening. No one would expect these young men to stand up to a king, let alone the one who's the most powerful one in the area. You'd rather die than do this one simple thing. Would it really kill you to worship this idol? And in their minds, they're like, yeah, I'd rather die. And the king, of course, does not take it well. It goes on, and we read it, he's furious. But if you can imagine the wrath or fury of a human being, this guy was like nuts. He was crazy, furious with their disobedience. And I'll read the rest of the story uh, onward as we get to the end of it. But this is what it says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, "Uh, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies 
The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. Truly remarkable. Not just the miracle, but King Nebuchadnezzar's response. We just, we just saw before in disobedience his fury and his anger and wrath of their disobedience and blatant disregard for his command. And then here comes God delivering them out of his hand and his response is to say, servants of the most high God. Doesn't seem angry anymore. He's just come face to face with the realization that he's not as powerful as he thinks he is. It's truly a remarkable end to story that otherwise could have ended tragically. God intervenes and delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at just the right time. The question then comes up again, who is truly worthy of worship? And this event tells us and the original audience that it is God and God alone. In this one miraculous event, God is showing King Nebuchadnezzar that not only is he wise enough to interpret dreams and come in those situations and help him out when he needs it, but he's even more powerful than the king or any so-called God. He is above their rule, and he's above their reign, and he's above their commands. Not only did he display his power over the king, he displayed his power even over death. The guards who bound and roped up the three boys died before they even got close to the fire. In their death, it's kind of just like, oh, and they dropped them, and they fell in the fiery furnace. They weren't even in the fire, and they died for their allegiance to a human king. Whereas these three remarkable men lived because of their allegiance to the king over all kings. They actually fell into the fire and lived. Those guards died and weren't even in it. Even more wild is the fact that their clothes weren't burned. Not a hair on their head was singed and they didn't even smell like smoke. Weird things that I, as I'm reading, like, why would, why would that even matter? Like, why would you take care of those little details, God? Like, who cares if they smelled like smoke? Who cares if their clothes are burned a little bit? But God was saying in this moment, I'm over all of these things. These things that you think are impossible, I'm doing them. They were in the midst of the fire and nothing on them was burned. They don't even smell like smoke. In fact, the only things that burned were their restraints. Those are the only things. And God delivered them in an amazing, miraculous way. And Nebuchadnezzar's tune changes from the one statement earlier, who is the God that will save you from my hand? to verse 29 where he declares there is no other God who could rescue in this way. Furthermore, he even outlaws anyone to speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Amazing story. Amazing. So what of us? Now, I'm not sure about you, uh, but I've never had anyone come up to me in my entire life and say, do this or you're dead for your faith. Do this or die. I've never been put in a similar situation as those three young men to conform or face death. 
But the truth is, there are many around our world who have and are, are currently experiencing it. Persecution is very real, and there are many Christians who have given their lives for the cause of Christ in order that the gospel be preached to those who need to hear the message of the cross so desperately and to know and meet Jesus. Now, from our vantage point on this side of the world, persecution seems more like a minor issue. At most, sure, we face ridicule, mockery. We are ostracized if we even mention the name of Jesus in certain places. That still costs. Even if you still get to walk away with your life, it still costs you something. To be ostracized, to be mocked and ridiculed because you follow Jesus. Our problem on this side of the world pertains to the same problem that these people faced in the story that we just heard. Our problem is the question, who is truly worthy of worship? We may not bow down to golden statues or images, but who or what are we worshiping? German-American theologian Paul Tillich pointed out that a person's God is the thing or person that one is most concerned about thinks the most about, or affects one's life the most. Read that again. He pointed out that a person's God is the thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks the most about, or affects one's life the most. There is no shortage of people or things that people devote themselves to. You don't have to look very far, especially in our culture. Money, work, Sex, pornography, a relationship, your phone, your car, anything. With the framework of Tillich's statement, think about the things in your own life that you are the most concerned about, think the most about, or affect your life the most. And that thing or person is your God. We may not be experiencing extreme persecution, we are definitely experiencing an ever-growing increase of our worship being directed more and more to stuff or to self than towards our great God. That, church, is our problem. In Jesus' encounter with a lawyer in Luke 10, as you go towards the New Testament, the question directed to Jesus in this statement is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies to this lawyer, well, what what does the law say? What is written? How do you read it? And the lawyer replies, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, everything we have with our entire body, spiritually and physically, all of our love is to be for God. It's about where we place things in the order of our lives. At what part in your life does that thing that you think about or concerned about the most, where in your life is that positioned? And the question from that is, how significant is God truly in my life? Is he at all important to me? Is he like top five, top ten? That's for you to, that's for you to wrestle with. But where in the list is God in your life? Are there things that aim to detract or distract my attention to love God. And this seems impossible, perhaps from a logical perspective. How do, you, how do you even love something with your entire being, heart, soul, mind, and body? It's, it's our human capacity. I, I can't fathom it. 
But when you come to experience the love of God, when you truly come to grips and feel that and understand it, you've experienced it, you truly understand what it is he has done for you, what he has done for me, for all of us. And in that, we can't help but return the love he has. Because it has given much, and in giving his son for us to die on the cross, it cost him dearly. When you come to the realization of that fullness of what God has done for you, you could not help but return that with heart, soul, mind, and body. But he did that so that you and me would not only experience salvation and freedom from sin and death, but that we would know him. It wasn't just about, okay, now you're free. You don't have to die the final death. That's not all Christ came to do and accomplish in his time here on earth. It was that we would know him, that we would truly experience God and realize that there is nothing in all of this world that compares to him. That one thing or two things that, that take a, a huge amount of time in your, your mental space, the things you focus on, God is saying, I am so much more than that. That thing that you have in your life does not compare to the glorious riches that God has. The question that came up for me as I was reading this story was, what if they had just bowed? What if they had just done it? What is the worst thing? What if they just compromised? Couldn't they have just faked it and been like, we're bowing, but really we're not. Like, we're just, it's fake. We don't actually mean it. And I think about all the things in my life that I've done, and with every sin, every fall, every failure, every shortcoming, every dumb decision I've ever made, to come out on the other side of those decisions and say, well, God will just forgive me. That would have been the same equivalent. Well, we can fake it, but God will let it go. It's not a huge deal. And as I think about those decisions and come to that statement, and say, well, God will just forgive me. This is what German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. Cheap grace. God has done so much for you, and this is how you respond to his grace. To take this free gift of salvation and life and to respond in turn to God by saying, thanks, this is great. I can continue doing the same things, but this time I'm forgiven. I can carry on as I've always carried on, and I don't have to change. I can still be who I was before I met you without an inkling or a desire to change any habit or lifestyle as we continue to live for ourselves. Jesus didn't come to live and die so that you could remain the same old, same old. He wants to bring real life. Not the life that you have lived the last however many years you've been on this earth. Real life. He wants to change your life radically from inside out, from what you used to be to what he knows you can be, to what he's created you to be. And this is our dilemma. Our dilemma is that following Jesus comes with a cost. Namely, letting go of sin and self. To come to the point where you say, it's not about me or what I want anymore, but it's about Jesus' way and his plans for me. That is a hard place to come to. In our human finite capacity, that is a hard place to come to to say, I'm not enough. God, you are more than all that I could have ever asked for or imagined. You are doing things that I can't do for myself. I can't live this life the way I've wanted to live. Jesus, what is your way? That is a hard place to come to. Yet Jesus beckons us all too. 
In Luke 9, uh, verses 23 and 25, Jesus tells his followers, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's about losing your life. That's our dilemma. Will we lose our life for the sake of Christ? Will we be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, I won't compromise. I will not serve. I will not bow. It's about losing your life in order to truly find it in Christ. Sure, you can have anything you could possibly want. You could go for anything. There are so many people in this life that just strive and strive after stuff. And you could do that. But apart from Christ, it's empty and meaningless. And in his words, Jesus' words, he says, your life is lost. Not forever, but there's loss in it. You're not living for anything. There's no meaning. There's no hope. It is void of real meaning and purpose. If you've been a follower of Jesus, you definitely know it is not easy. You know it is not easy to follow Jesus. And he never makes any claims that it ever will be. Jesus never promises us the easy way. He never promises that this life he's called us to live will always be easy breezy. On many occasions, he states that persecution and hardship is an inevitable outcome of following him. It's going to happen. In fact, he even tells them in John 15, 8, if the world hates you, know this, it hated me first. If the world hates you, it hated me first before it hated you. There's a cost to following Jesus, but the gains and promises far outweigh the cost when we come to understand all that Christ has to say to us and offer us. The world may despise us or reject us, but Jesus' promise of peace holds fast even when we encounter hardship. Jesus tells them, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Whatever you're doing in your life to find peace apart from Christ, that is an uphill battle. Apart from Christ, you will not find peace. And he says this, I've said these things to you that in me you may find peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But this is an amazing statement. Take heart. Church, take heart. I have overcome the world. There's nothing that can stand against Christ. I have overcome the world, he says. There needs to be a resolution in our lives the same way there was a resolution For those three young men, our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, the way we have hoped or expected, we will not serve your gods, and we certainly will not bow down to any image. Our resolution is this. Jesus is the only one worth following. Nothing else compares. Men, women, children, everyone lets us down. Jesus never does. He's the only one worth following. Read through these passages of Scripture. Read about who He is and what He said and did and you will find so much more than a good man just doing good things. Jesus is way more than that. Jesus came with the sole purpose of redeeming us and freeing us from the grip of sin and death. Ultimately, separation from God. 
He lived on this earth as a human being. He felt as we felt. He knew pain. He knew suffering. He knows what it's like to be human. In Hebrews 4, it tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he came face to face with them. He knew thirst. He knew hunger, exhaustion, temptation, pain, sorrow, death. Yet he remained perfect and sinless through all of it. He understands what God would go to such great lengths to save us. The gods we read about in, in Nebuchadnezzar's day, they certainly wouldn't have saved you for any insubordination. You would have been dead. And yet in Romans it tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. From a human vantage point, we might just say, well, just wipe them all out and be done with it. Are humans really worth this trouble? Are we worth all of this time and effort on God to come and save us? What's the point? Wipe it out and be done with it. But we are told that God's love and mercy for us was so great that he wouldn't do that. It was not in his heart. No. In Romans 5 verse 8, he tells us that while we are still sinners, he sent Jesus to come and die for us and he died on our behalf when we deserved death for all of our sin and all of our wrongdoing. And furthermore, not only did he die on our behalf, he saved us literally from death. He overcame death when he hung on the cross, breathed his final breath, and was buried in a tomb only to rise again three days later and declared that no longer would death always have the final say. He overcame it so that you and I could live truly. He overcame it so that we would experience life the way it was meant to be lived. Not just here in the present time, but to live with him forever when this life fades away. That we would no longer need to fear death anymore. That it wouldn't be something that we are afraid of or hesitate about, but that we step into and say death isn't the final end. After this, we go into glory. In giving our lives to him, surrendering to his way, and believing in our hearts and confessing with our mouth that he is Lord, our lives would be saved. That coming face to face with Christ, we could truly realize and say as Nebuchadnezzar did when he witnessed the power of God, no other God could rescue this way. No other God would rescue this way. When all seemed lost and hopeless, Christ came that we may truly experience life the way it was meant to be lived. While Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story reminds us to stand firm in our convictions, they also redirect our thoughts and hearts back to this question of worship. What am I spending my life on? What am I devoting myself to? What do I love more than the one who gave himself for me? They were willing to lose their lives for the sake of God, And I want to live my life the same way for Christ and to say as Paul did in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead.
Where's our dilemma as we live our lives? Will we be like those, the nations, the languages, who fell and bowed right away without any thought to the process? Or will we stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the face of our culture that says, this is more important than God? Devote your life to it. Will we resolutely stand firm and say, no, I will not serve your gods. I will not bow. What are you spending your life on? Let's pray. God, sometimes this is a hard hearing to hear. The way you draw our attention from the things in our lives that are not of you. To reorient our our, our hearts and our minds back to what is truly important. That the things in our lives that have distracted us and caused us to take our eyes off of you, the things that we've come to feel or believe that are more important or have more value, God, forgive us. Forgive us as a church that we've put things before you, that we have had idols in our lives, that we've had things that we have declared to be significant over you, Christ. God, let us rise to the occasion the same way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and not give in to the things that our culture calls and tells us to do. That we would stand firm in our faith. That we'd focus on you, our healer, our rock, our salvation. That in our times of trouble, that you would be our freedom, our savior. And that any of these things in our lives that we've accumulated or bought into, God, may you just help us to throw that all away and say, as Paul did, I count it as rubbish. This is not worth the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. God, may you bring us to that point of realizing who you truly are. May we experience you in a new and fresh way. God, I pray for each and every single one of us as we head into our week that this teaching you would help us to carry on in our lives that you would help us to think about the things that we are spending our lives on and ask the question, is this more important to me than Christ? God, may you encourage us and grow us. This isn't an exhortation to make us feel guilty. God, you are calling us to a deeper life. You are calling us to know you in a deeper, more meaningful way than we've ever known or have ever known before. God, take us deeper. Help us to know you more. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.